ladies and gentlemen, from the Marshall Islands, Kathy Jetnall Kejina. So I wanted to share a poem with you all today. This poem was a poem that was written for the United Nations Climate Summit back in 2014. Um, it's a poem that I was asked to write for the opening, and originally they wanted me to write it for the leaders and for the movement, but um, I didn't know how to do that. So instead I wrote a letter to my daughter, who was seven months old at the time. Her name is Mata Felipeinam. And um, it's basically what I wanted her to know about the people who are doing something on climate change. And it's, it came out to be one of my most hopeful pieces. And so because this talk is focusing on climate issues, um, I wanted to share this poem as an opening. Uh, so yeah, now we can start. <laughs> Dear Matafelebenum, you are a seven-month-old sunrise of gummy smiles. You're bald as an egg and bald as the Buddha. Your thighs that are thunder, shrieks that are lightning, so excited for bananas, hugs, and our morning walks along the lagoon. Dear Matafelebenum, I want to tell you about that lagoon. That lucid, sleepy lagoon lounging against the sunrise. Men say that one day that lagoon will devour you. They say we'll gnaw at the shoreline, chew at the roots of your breadfruit trees, gulp down rows of sea walls, and crunch through your island's shattered bones. They say you, your daughter, and your granddaughter too will wander, rootless, with only a passport to call home. Dear Matafelebeno, don't cry. Mommy promises you no one will come and devour you. No greedy whale of a company sharking through political seas. No backwater bullying of businesses with broken morals. No blindfolded bureaucracy. Gonna push this mother ocean over the edge. No one's drowning, baby. No one's moving. No one's losing their homeland. No one's gonna become a climate change refugee. Or should I say, no one else to the Carteret Islanders of Papua New Guinea, and to the Taro Islanders of the Solomon Islands, I take this moment to apologize to you. We are drawing the line here, because we, baby, are going to fight. Your mommy, daddy, Bubujima, your country, and your president too, we will all fight. And even though there are those hidden behind platinum titles who like to pretend that we don't exist, who like to pretend that the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Maldives, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, the floods of Algeria, Colombia, Pakistan, and all the earthquakes and hurricanes and tidal waves didn't exist. Still, there are those who see this. Hands reaching out, fists raising up, Banners unfurling, megaphones booming, and we are canoes blocking coal ships. We are the radiance of solar villages. We are the fresh, clean soil of the farmer's past. We are petitions blooming from teenage fingertips. We are families biking, recycling, reusing, engineers dreaming, designing, building, artists painting, dancing, writing, and we are spreading the word. And there are thousands out on the street, marching hand in hand, chanting for change now, and they're marching for you, baby. They're marching for us because we deserve to do more than just survive. We deserve to thrive. Dear Matifelebeno, you are eyes heavy with drowsy weight, so just close those eyes and sleep in peace 
because we won't let you down. You'll see. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I challenge anybody not to be moved by that presentation from Cathy. Um, I'm not sure what more we can say about justice and climate change. I think Cathy summed it up in an extraordinarily powerful way. Thank you very much for your time, your engagement and your passion and for being here this afternoon. Um, my name is Ben Doherty. I'm a journalist from The Guardian newspaper. It's my great pleasure to, to have a... Um, uh, our reader is in. Excellent. Um, uh, to have this um, extraordinary panel before you. But before we begin, I'd like to um, acknowledge that we meet today on the land of the Ghana people and I acknowledge their custodianship of this land and their leaders uh, and elders past, present and emerging and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating juxtaposition that we acknowledge a thousand generations of custodianship of this place um, of, in, of the Indigenous people um, and we're here to talk about the damage that's been done in a couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. So that, 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 um, that juxtaposition I, I think is incredibly powerful when you watch that presentation from Cathy. Um, my job today is essentially to get out of the way of an extraordinarily, um, almost unbelievably well-qualified panel that you have before you. Um, already introduced is Cathy Jetnal Kijina from the Marshall Islands. You heard Dear Matafela Painam, which was a, uh, a poem she wrote uh, for and read to the UN General Assembly, so very much a similar vibe to this afternoon. Um, uh, she is known globally um, as an advocate um, on behalf of her people who face an existential threat uh, due to climate change. She uses her words, her imagery, um, to bear witness to the trials of her people. She founded Jojikum uh, to assist Marshallese youth and is selected as one of 13 climate warriors. Uh, her book is Ayep Jaltok, Poems from a Marshallese Daughter. Next to Cathy is Ursula Rakova, uh, known in Papua New Guinea as the human face of climate change. Ursula is from the island of Han in the Cataract Atoll. She no longer lives there because her people were and her family was displaced by climate change and she lives in Bougainville now. She established Tulela Pesa, uh, an organisation that translated sailing in the wind of our own to help her people combat climate change. She has fought and won against mining interests. She set up schools for children. She's found land for people displaced by rising seas and established the Bougainville Cocoa Net. Uh, as a company to help her people earn a sustainable living. She is the recipient of a Pride of PNG Award. On the other couch, the uh, very distinguished gentleman sitting with me, um, Tim Costello, Baptist Minister and Chief Advocate for World Vision Australia. Um, he advocates on behalf of refugees and asylum seekers uh, on issues of gambling, social justice and inequality and Australia's foreign aid. He's a former Victorian of the Year and an Australian Peace Prize winner. Uh, he has a book, Hope, Faith, and he's working on another book called Love, as I understand it. And uh, Julian Burnside, sitting with Tim, um, one of Australia's great legal minds, well known, I'm sure, to this audience, um, a passionate and articulate advocate for social justice, in particular in the issue of refugees, uh, winner of the Sydney Peace Prize, author of numerous books, uh, including Reflections on Justice and Injustice. He's an AO, a QC, and many other letters of note, I'm sure. Um, the owner of the most recognisable horn-rimmed glasses at the Victorian Bar, Julian Burnside. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. I'd like to start by asking Cathy and Ursula uh, about um, 
what it's like to live with climate change, not as a political issue, not as a theoretical challenge for the future, but as an existential threat and a challenge being confronted every single day. But I also want to talk about the differences in the approach of your people. Ursula, you've moved from Hart Island to Bougainville. Cathy, the Marshallese are determined to stay in their place for as long as they can. Can you tell me about what it's like to live with climate change as an existential threat? Um, yeah, so I guess first off, I would say it's, it's more than an existential threat at this point. It's actually a tangible uh, living thing that we're, we're, we're dealing with right now, or tangible crisis. So the Marshall Islands is located in the northern Pacific region. We're only two meters above sea level. Um, we're low-lying coral atolls. So that means that some islands are as big as this tent. Some islands are as big as this festival. And um, some are even smaller. And um, some parts are so narrow that you can stand in the middle of the road and fear ocean spray on either side of you. And so anytime that there's a high tide, uh, all this water rushes over our seawalls. It crashes into our homes. It displaces people. Just this past January, four houses were displaced because of a, of a king tide. Um, and we're getting, and it's happening as many as four times a year, and it's only begun in the past five years that we've seen it really this bad. And I've talked to all of my elders, and I've asked them, you know, have you seen anything like this before? And they've all said the same thing. No, they haven't. You know, they're, they're just as shocked at, at what is happening. Um, besides that, we're seeing uh, really uh, extreme weather. So two years ago, our country declared a state of emergency from um, one of the worst droughts we've ever seen. Uh, people were literally fighting over water because of how bad the drought was. Um, and then I, I even visited an island that once ha ha was lush, it had coconut trees, and then 10 years later, it's just a pile of rocks and sand because of the constant erosion. And so we are not moving at this time. We're, we ha are holding on to our islands, and we're telling people that there's still time to turn the ship around, you know, that, that there's still an opportunity for us to, to save our islands, and we shouldn't have to move. Um, you know, uh, it's been interesting being here with my friend Ursula because we've been learning from each other and our, our country's different positions. And for us, there's nowhere else to go. There's no higher ground to move to. And so this for us is definitely fighting for our homes. And that's what, what, what we've been doing, yeah. Thank you, Kathy. Catretz um, uh, is 86 kilometers of Bougainville. And Bougainville is to the north of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is to the northern tip of Australia, so we are neighbors. Um, we have been experiencing shoreline erosion, very severe shoreline erosion, saltwater intrusion into our food gardens. Um, our, our wells are just too salty for us to drink from. We can no longer drink from those wells. And we see palms, coconut trees falling every year year in, year out. We've lost more than 30 to 40 of 50 meters of, shore, um, of soil because of shoreline erosion, storm surges, king tides. Last month, homes were washed away. Food gardens were destroyed. And that's just what we do. It's, it's usual. We see that every day. The islands, the seas that we previously were enjoying to swim are turning against us. We are building sea walls that are being destroyed. We are planting mangroves, mangroves to buffer the storm surges from coming in. They are being uprooted. The current is just too tight. The current is getting stronger. 
it's getting stronger every day. In 2001, our elders and chiefs approached the government in Bougainville to move some families away. But because the government has other burning issues, other things to worry about, it did not worry about our people. We had to get organized. And despite the, the lack of support from the government, we have made our move. And we are moving from the land that has protected us, protected us for 65,000 of years. We are moving away from that land. We are moving away from our cultural inheritance to the islands. And we are moving to a bigger island. And lucky for us, because we have Bougainville, it is a bigger island we can move to. Think about the Marshalls, the Kiribati people, the Tuvaluans, the Maldives. Everyone, so many people will be displaced. We cannot continue to talk. We have got to help each other. We have got to act now. And climate change is here to stay. But we've got to take responsibility over our own actions. And it has to start with us. It starts with me. What can I do? Julian and Tim, you've heard from Cathy, you've heard from Ursula. We live in a country where there are many people who don't believe in climate change, don't think it's real, think it maybe is right, maybe not. Some of these people are quite influential. How do you, how do you address the situation when there are deniers, when the argument's not still, still ongoing? I'd quite like to get Tony Abbott moved to the Marshall Islands. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is a problem. Apart from the area around Townsville at the moment, I suspect there's a lot of Australians who aren't convinced that climate change is real. And there's a very interesting argument about this which didn't get a run when Lord Monckton was out here preaching you know, climate denialism. Um, and the argument goes like this. There's, I think it's 97% of climate scientists believe that climate change is real, at least in part anthropogenic and dangerous. Okay, uh, the climate denialists say, well, scientific truth isn't established by majority vote. That's true, as Galileo learned. Um, so let's say the odds against climate change being real, anthropogenic and dangerous, let's suppose the odds against it are 80%. Only 20% says that what the climate scientists are saying is fair income. If that 20% comes in, we are in for a lot of trouble, which we could have avoided, and it's going to have catastrophic effects like it's having already in the Marshall Islands, Kiribati and so on. 20% um, odds of a catastrophic avoidable outcome is worse odds than Russian roulette. So tell the deniers to go and play Russian roulette with their children. See how they react to that. But... Tim, uh, Australia is the power in this region. In, in, in the Pacific we are the wealthiest, most developed country. Um, what does Australia need to do in the region, and is it doing enough? Well, our leaders need to hear the cries from the heart from Cathy and Ursula. Uh, I think there's two questions going on. One question is, why are there sceptics? Why are there deniers? How is it possible, both in Australia and 
Really, the Republican Party in the US became the first major party anywhere in the world to be climate change deniers. In the uh, nation that you actually need to be stepping up. So we just sense how, how perverse this is. But when you um, hear the cry from the hearts, you actually are asking an ethical question. What responsibility do we in Australia have as the big power in the region? What responsibility do humans have? And I think this is profoundly ethical insofar as uh, most of us intuitively go, ethics are learnt locally, so I'm loyal to the person in my neighbourhood, my state, maybe my nation. Beyond that, they have another nation and not my responsibility. You know, the ancient Stoics originally said, treat uh, your cousin as your brother and sister, your extended family as the same, and the stranger as your brother and sister. They had this idea of universal concentric boundaries where you invite people in. Now, if the Stoics had that in Athens and Sparta back in 300, uh, you know, Christian theology would argue everyone carries the image of God. What is the ethical block now to hearing the cry and saying, we are responsible? I have a duty as an Australian for Cathy and Ursula as much as I do for others in this room. Against the world turning inwards, and Australia's doing part of this to answer your question, we've smashed aid, $12 billion over the last four years, a lot of that climate change aid. Wherever I go, I hear the stories of poor people where World Vision works because climate change affects the poorest on the worst land in the most vulnerable places everywhere around the world. We've smashed aid. But... Um, you then, you then ask this question, how, how is it possible to actually think the zeitgeist of turning inwards, which is happening around the world, can save us? Uh, I call them the old gods of blood and soil. The gods of blood lead to racism, soil to nationalism. Let's make America great again. I was in the G20 at Hamburg. I was watching Erdogan, who was talking about let's make... Uh, Turkey and the Ottoman Empire, great again. We'll overcome the humiliation. Putin, Mother Russia, great again. Trump, America, great again. It really struck me, you'd never hear a German chancellor say, let's make Germany great again. <laughs> we know whose voice it is, and this turning inwards of blood and soil cannot deal with climate change. So we need an ethic that actually understands our fate is entwined, that climate change must hear the cries of Cathy and Ursula because it is profoundly hostile for the human species, that great challenge, and for all other biospecies. But we don't think that way. We don't think that way. And it's interesting, you know, if, if the question is climate justice, um, how do you persuade people who are causing climate change, including us, to do something to help people who are suffering the consequences, who did nothing to cause the problem. You know, we, we, we reap the benefit, they pay the price. And a lot of Australians reckon that's okay. Can I ask Ursula and Cathy then? You know, the, the, the Pacific is the region in the world that has contributed least towards anthropogenic climate change. It is the region that will feel it first and is feeling it first and will feel it most severely. So where is, where is the justice there?
we, we feel there is no justice uh, when it comes to climate change. Because we, we do not have, even have uh, motor bicycles in, on our island. We do not drive vehicles. I mean, where can we drive those vehicles? Huh? Automobiles. We, our elders have never seen a vehicle in their life unless they come into Bougainville. But we are, praying that, we are paying the price. We are victims of what is happening. And we need your support. We did not cause what is happening to us. It has been caused by so many generations ago. But it's happening now. But the least we can do is to contain what is happening so that people like us can continue to enjoy the islands we were born and which land we are connected to. We are moving to Bougainville. Fair. The customs are the same. But the land is still not our land. Our ancestors are buried on the island. And we need to be closer to our ancestors' bones. But we will not be able to do that. So there is no justice. I think Ursula captured that really well, actually, yeah. Can, I, can we talk then about displacement? And, and there, there's a phrase that's working its way in, into the, the discourse around climate change refugees. And people on this panel all have a problem with, with that phrase for different reasons. Can I start with you, Cathy? Why don't you want to be... Why can't you accept... Um, why can't you apprehend, I, I, I suppose, the, the, the risk of, of being labelled a climate change refugee? Well, my answer will be a little bit shorter because I'm still kind of trying to understand what it is that I have an issue with the term refugees. There's, it, it doesn't fit in this situation. Um, I think Ursula has been saying that you know she prefers climate displaced people. Um, I, I think for me, I, I'm just concerned that it, it doesn't. Yeah, it, it doesn't fit the situation. This isn't um, the same problem that we're having, and that. Uh, if it falls under that category, then our, our needs won't, our special needs, the needs of our people that is, is very different, it won't be met. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly still kind of trying to understand what it is exactly that bothers me about it, but that's, that's where I can start with, yeah. We, we are moving, but like everyone says in Kiribati and in Tuvalu, we are moving, uh, we want to move with dignity, and, and that's how we feel. We, we do not like to be called climate refugees because we feel that we are being displaced. And refugees um, will basically um, kind of dump us together with everyone else who is a refugee um, being displaced because of war. We, we, we are not at war here, although we are at war with uh, climate and the change of weather. Julian, there's a, there's a legal problem with the term climate change refugees, well, isn't there? There is a legal problem because the character of refugees is defined by the Refugees Convention and it is basically a person who is unwilling or unable to return to their country of origin because of a well-founded fear of persecution on various grounds. If you're unable to return to your country of origin because it doesn't exist anymore, that doesn't make you a refugee. 
Um, but, of course, there's another practical argument. In Australia, being a refugee is not going to win you any points, and so being a climate change refugee probably sets you back two squares. Yeah, I'd just say in Australia, the uh, term refugee has been conflated with terrorist uh, quite deliberately. And uh, the, the, the truth is that we have in our mind, and this goes to almost the old Victorian notions of deserving poor and undeserving poor, always a fiction, but um, we've always said, well, conflict is perhaps because of evil that governments and humans have done. That which is natural... Well, we're innocent. That's really innocent suffering. And we need to sort of play with where we go with that is concepts being conflated. I'd like to ask this question to the panel, but I'll, I'll start with you, Tim. We've heard a lot, uh, and, and we've, we've heard from Ursula and Cathy about the need for their communities to feel in control of what's happening to them. Cathy's community, the Marshallese, are very determined to stay and... In, in the land that they're connected to. Ursula's talked about the need to move with dignity for their community to be in control of that move. So that's, that's the agency at a local level. But climate change is a global problem caused by global factors. Where does, where does the change come from? Where does the leadership come from? Is this, is this a global issue to be confronted as a global community or does, does the answer lie in Ursula's place, in Cathy's place? Yeah, look, uh, the, the extraordinary challenge we've got is we know the world is a waterbed. You press down in one place, it comes up in another. But we've retreated to just pulling national levers, which cannot deal with refugees, it can't deal with war, it can't deal with climate change and disasters. Um, so we absolutely have to have a mind shift to see that all of our destiny is profoundly tied up in an interdependent way. Part of this is the shortness of our both political cycles and our thinking. You know, human progress has been driven by parents throughout history who have said, I'll make unbelievable sacrifices to my own personal cost just so my kids get a better chance than me. And our political cycles sort of focus a little bit like this. Any decision a politician makes that is costly with the benefit in climate change policies 20 years hence, they say, but I'm running in three years, not in 20 years' time. Uh, parents can't need to be thinking to the third and fourth generation, not just, not just their kids and their job, but if they're going to be a coal miner, so their jobs are going to be lost. So it is a profound paradigm shift in our thinking that uh, requires a global, not government, but global governance, what Paris represented in those attempts. Of course, working locally and telling the stories, because at the end of the day, the thing that marks us off as humans is that we, are, we feel empathy. You hear a Cathy or an Ursula story, you go, how can I not be touched? What can I imagine I will now do? So the local has to connect with that feeding into a new imagination. Cathy, Ursula, can I ask you the same question? Is the answer local? Is the answer global? The answer is local for a lot of us in the Pacific who, um, who are being displaced, and, and we cannot continue to say it's a local response. 
um, it's a global response. Um, because although we are leading um, these processes ourselves, we need support from everyone. And since a lot of it has been globally caused, the global community has to be responsible also. Yeah, I would, I would agree with her so much. So basically both, The problem yeah. happens when um, you try and provoke a local response. Now, what would happen? Uh, this, this festival probably brings together the largest number of people who agree with the idea that climate change is real. Probably the largest group in Australia here this time. If you asked every one of them, can we turn off all the air conditioning, all the fans, so that we will reduce our contribution to global warming? I think a lot of them might say no. And that's the problem. That's the problem. If you're asking people to make a personal sacrifice to help someone else on the other side of the world that they've never heard of, most people will resist. Look, can I take that point in another direction then, Julian? You, you talk about this, this, this is an audience, in, obviously, have given up their Sunday afternoon to come and talk about the issue of climate change and justice. These are people engaged with this issue. How do you talk, literally in this case, outside the tent? How do you reach people who aren't convinced? I have no idea. I really do not know. And maybe, I mean, you know, if you could... Our politicians are supposed to be our leaders, and if only they could do some leadership, that might make a difference. <laughs> Uh, and that's why I'd like to see people like Tony Abbott and maybe Turnbull and the, the Cabinet go over to the Marshall Islands, have a look around, take a lucky guess at what's happening and come back and get serious about it. The, uh, the, the, a few years ago, the Maldivian Cabinet famously held a Cabinet meeting underwater, I think, as demonstration of, you know, of, of their futures. I'm just going to go on a, on a quick tangent. Can I have a, a note to the audience? In about 10 minutes, I'm going to open the floor up for questions. So if you can kind of think of things you'd like to say. Again, the usual caveats, um, no sort of dissertations dressed up as questions, but genuine questions um, you know, of one or two sentences each. But I'll, uh, I'll, I'll come to the audience shortly. On a slightly tangential issue, but, but certainly related, um, there is a great deal of discussion around uh, the future of the world and nuclear weapons. Um, the Marshall Islands is a country that knows the nuclear threat in a more real way than almost any country on Earth. Can you talk about the influence of nuclear testing on your country? Yeah, um, thanks for giving me some time to talk about it. Yes, uh, the US tested over 60 nuclear weapons in our islands uh, after World War II, one of which was 10,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. And um, I just came back from a canoe voyage to one of the nuclear waste sites. Um, so this is called, this is, takes place in uh, Anywayduk Atoll. It's called Anywayduk Atoll. And as you know, in atolls, they have multiple islands. And one of the islands, um, the bombs created this huge, massive crater. And after, during the cleanup of Anywedak Atoll, after the testing was completed, they took all this plutonium and all of this, um, all of, all of this uh, nuclear debris and they ground it into a concrete slurry and filled this crater. And now they're saying that because of the rising sea level, um, that nuclear waste is getting leaked into the ocean. And so this is uh, a really sharp, it's, it's, it's basically the best metaphor for the intersection between nuclear issues and climate issues. You know, it's just like how, um, um, it's just like how Ursula was saying earlier, like, you know, these, this is a case where we didn't have any 
benefit from the nuclear weapons testing program. You know, they said this is to save our, to save the world. They told us that, you know, this is for world peace, but we didn't have any enemies. And yet we were the recipients of this horrific legacy of testing that still, you know, we still have some of the highest cancer rates in the world. This is the worst trauma we've ever seen. And there's islands that are vaporized and that we can never go home to. And so whenever we talk, I talk about climate issues, I always try to bring in this nuclear legacy because people say you're going to experience the loss of your islands. Well, we've already experienced the loss of our islands through the nuclear testing program. And we know that pain and that trauma and we don't want it to, you know, we don't want to ever have to deal with it ever again. And so uh, this is something that I'm very passionate about and I, I use my work and my writing to, to, to highlight these, this connection between these issues, that there are bigger global forces at play here that we can't control, you know, political leaders that we have no control over. But the best that me and Ursula and our country know to do is to just continue sounding the alarm, continue sharing our stories with people, continue connecting with people in the hopes that it'll, pr it'll press forward the movement in some form. Uh, Tim. Tim, uh, there's about to be a meeting at an unknown place at an unknown time between two men of interesting haircuts to talk about this issue. Um, what hope do you have for, for de-escalation, for demilitarisation in the current global environment? Well, I uh, have written a book on hope, so I want to keep hope alive. And I think um, as an optimist, I'm a perennial optimist, uh, it's not that I don't see the extraordinary direction and danger and walking to the cusp that the world's walking to, but I believe our problems are solvable. So I, I hope these two men with bad haircuts uh, can actually find a way through. Uh, look, I'm terribly struck, that those of you who've read the book, The Merchants of Doubt, which basically is just so doubt. Don't worry whether it's true or not, or even if it's rebutted later, Everyone just remembers the doubt and the allegation. They don't remember the rebuttal. That book makes the point that some of the proponents of nuclear weapons and some of the brightest nuclear physicists are the leading deniers of climate change. And it's an interesting tracing of a sort of ideological view of saying there should be no government really intervention to limit the nation. Uh, you get it in America with guns. No, the state can't interfere with our liberties. And I think the climate change paradigm is, you know, it's as ancient as uh, Sparta and Athens. So Socrates said, ethics, the individual un uh, unexamined life, is not worth living. Actually, Plato and Aristotle admired Sparta, where politics was more important than ethics, survival of the community was actually more important than the individual. Um, whilst I believe in human rights and individual rights, it seems to me the climate change shift, whether it's nuclear weapons uh, or the thinking shift, whether it's climate change, actually has to say the survival of where we're on uh, up to now is the question. And that challenge that um, has been thrown out to us about Julian is very personal. You know, the climate change debates essentially are arguing who owns, who owns the sky. And we say, yep, we didn't know. We got our industrialisation, our great growth by putting carbon up there. But, but understand, poor countries, you can't do what we did. And understand, we can't take away a standard of living that we now have to actually be just toward you.
This is a dead-end way of thinking if the global community, if you call it global politics, has to take precedence over eth ethical thinking, whether it's nuclear weapons or whether it's climate change. And since we've gone back to ancient Greece, I'm sure you're all reading the um, history of the Peloponnesian Wars by Thucydides in recent days. In, no, there's a very interesting part in it. There's what's called the Melian Dialogue. Athens and Sparta were at war. Athens wasn't doing too well. It needed a launching pad uh, to be able to launch attacks on Sparta and the island of Melos was perfectly placed. So they went across to the island of Melos and had a chat to the people who ran it and they said, look, we know you've never done anything wrong against us but we're going to take you over and there's an easy way and there's a hard way. And they said, of course you'll say it, it's unjust because because you've never harmed us, you've never done anything against us. But you know as well as we do that justice only exists between equals in power. And where power is unequal, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. Now, the whole history of English law has been ostensibly calculated to moderate the harshness of that principle. But in climate justice, we see precisely that thinking and that's tragic. It is really tragic. And if it wasn't for the fact... Actually, climate change, when you think about it, won't wipe us all out because people like the Kalahari Bushmen, Outback Aborigines, they'll survive it because they've survived for a very long time. So maybe Tony Abbott should think about this, that by denying climate change, he may be responsible for the Aborigines getting their land back. From Donald Trump to Thucydides via Tim Costello's book to Aboriginal land rights. That was an extraordinary <laughs> answer. Uh, rambling doesn't begin to be describe it, Julian. Um, <laughs> uh, before I, I open to questions from the audience, I'd like to ask Ursula one more question. You've been speaking about this for a very long time, the issue of climate change, the threat to your land, the threat to your people. Are attitudes to your message changing? Are you changing minds? Are you winning the debate? Let's say we started in 2006. We've had 27 international media groups on Turi Island, and we are still struggling 10 years later. So, and I've been to four COPs. Um, I've had a lot of international exposure, like they say. I'm still waiting for help to come. Kathy? Oh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm newer to the game, to be honest. I, I just started doing this in 2000. So that poem was in 2014, and then that sort of launched my career, and then I've, I've been asked to do this a lot more, events like this, basically. Um, and it's a very interesting space to inhabit as an, an indigenous woman, as a young woman, as a poet. Um, and, and I feel as though, as an ambassador a lot of times, and honestly, it's emotionally draining to do this work, you know, to constantly come to people pleading for your island, almost begging, and, and it's not, and yet I continue to do it because my elders have been fighting for nuclear issues their whole lives to the point where they've passed away, and, um, and they haven't stopped, and they never stopped, and so for me, um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think it, 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 nothing has happened yet to make me feel like, we did it, woohoo, you know, it's not there yet, 
Um, 1.5 did make it into the Paris Agreement, which was actually a very big deal for my nation, the temp global temperature of 1.5 being prioritized rather than two degrees. Um, that was a huge deal for us when that made it into the Paris Agreement. But then there's all these other issues that are still there. So I guess it depends on the day. <laughs> it depends on the day that and, and what I'm feeling that day and what kind of news are coming across because then Trump won. I'm based in the U.S., so yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm rambling a little bit, but I guess I feel like there's no option for us to say, all right, we've been heard, we can stop now. You know, that's never been an option of whether or not we're successful. It's just you got to keep going and you got to keep put it, putting the message out there. Yeah. And it's worth remembering what Aaron Dutty Roy said. Aaron Dutty Roy is a great uh, activist in India, and she once said, that a thing once seen cannot be unseen. And if you've seen a great moral wrong, to remain silent is as much a political act as to speak against it. So I, you're right to speak against it. I'd like to go to the audience now for questions. I don't know if there are microphones out there. Um, you can have mine. Hi there. Am I first? Yeah. Um, fabulous presentation. A few questions. Let's just pretend I'm an evil global bank. Nobody's mentioned money on this debate so far. I'm just going to pick up on the point Julie made about the imbalance of power. So I'm an evil global bank, and I know that food is going to be very valuable in the future. Will you do me a deal? Will you sell me all your fishing rights in exchange for the billions of dollars you need to fix your island? I, I will not sell you my fish. Uh, I will not sell you my island uh, for a million dollars. No, I will not. Ditto. Hi, um, I'm Maddie. I'm from Iran. I've been living here for about six, seven years. Um, and yeah, it's easy sitting there blaming Donald Trump or making joke about Tony Abbott. Yeah, it's easy. Um, blame other people for whatever is happening in the world. But um, what I want to say is, um, every time someone talking to me, I've got accent, as you can hear, they're asking me, oh, where are you from? You've got accent. Yeah. Why would you ask this question? Um, yeah, so what I'm going to say is, mm, it means this is your country. That is my country. Probably, if you have that attitude, means this is your responsibility. You look after your country. You don't care about other countries. And also, why do we have, still, why do we have a term of refugee? People don't have a right to pick they, where they want to live. Um, if It's not easy. I moved to Australia when I was 28. It's not easy moving country. Starting zero point in that age, it's not easy. So. You should be so desperate to move country, to move your home, to leave everything you have behind, coming to new place, new world, um, with new language, new people, no friend, no family. So uh, wh why we don't care for our people? 
they, they want to come here. What is this term you are using? I'm sorry, but I really didn't like that. Climate refugee, what does that even mean? Um, if they are that desperate coming here, why are we all calling them refugee? I, 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 I take your point. I, I think we, we discussed the term refugee in its strict legal sense, and it, and it does have a, a legal meaning under the, under the Refugees Convention. And I think the point we were making that, that the Refugees Convention is not uh, a, a, a useful tool for dealing with people who are, who are displaced by climate change. But uh, thank you very much for your, for your points. Um, There are movements like um, Simplify and Declutter. These would, to a certain extent, help um, combat climate change. Um, so is that a good way to go instead of always saying climate change up front, but developing small movements like that? Yes. Everything which people do helps raise the conscience of everyone else. Any effort you can make is going to be worthwhile. Um, whether it's going to be enough, whether it will produce the right result in the right time is an open question, but it's worth giving it a go. Because if you value your children and their children, you're doing it for them. Yeah, I, I'd just say that uh, I think being personal and taking personal responsibility is the challenge. So we know the world actually produces 10% more food each year than it actually needs. On top of that, we're losing through both overconsumption and waste almost a half of what we produce. That's before you even get to the billion tonnes of, uh, of uh, grain that only produces 240 million tonnes of edible animal products, meat and other things. So that then becomes very personal about how I eat, how I waste, what I do. I think actually bringing it home to our lifestyle, so it's not just pointing the finger at people up there, is, is profoundly important. Uh, hello. hello. I'm a baby boomer, displaced person, most grateful to be brought to Australia. And I understand that we have to give something back in order to be in a more equitable world. But I'd like to address the elephant in the room and that's population. Australia is still paying people to have babies, not paying much help for them to be raised, but um, could you address the issue of overpopulation in this planet and how we're going to cope? So uh, the, the growth of population predicting to be 9 billion, not 7 billion by 2030 is a profound challenge. But I often think we uh, think of this too simplistically, uh, that if we just said to the poor, stop having babies and we'll deal with the population challenge, we'd be solving this. Firstly, when people say to me, tell them to stop having babies, Tim, like I can do that. Uh, secondly, only an authoritarian government like China, one China, uh, one child policy, not many of us are going to vote for that sort of political system. Thirdly, every country that has moved out of poverty has naturally moved to zero population growth. If you want to get people out of, out, uh, stop people having babies, you actually address poverty. If you think of your great-grandparents, your great-grandparents had six or eight kids. We didn't have social security and protective mechanisms. 
it's an entirely rational choice when you're poor to have a lot of babies so that those that survive will look after you in old age when there's no age pension and you're sick. The way to deal with population growth is the very opposite of what Australia is doing, smashing its aid program and entrenching poverty. We're at the lowest level ever in our aid program. It's actually to invest in lifting people out of poverty. I think for us in the Pacific, especially small lying atolls and, and small island nations, we, we, we are looking into population as well. And, and it's our local, uh, in our local context. context. And uh, we've got cultures that actually control our birth. Uh, so many, like 20 years ago, our men would not live with women for two years. This was family planning at its best. <laughs> but then religion came in, brought by other people. So now we have to live with our husbands every night. I'm just wondering if Australians knew the names Sai Bai, Boy Goo and Yam, they would then be concerned about their fellow Australians who are indeed battered by the most severe king tides and storm surges on record on the 31st of January this year and have been displaced for the last 40 to 50 years. Would Australians then be more empathetic? So these are islands in the Torres Strait um, and they have been over the last few years inundated almost every king tide. Um, there are Australians who have been displaced by climate change already. This is not a, a, an issue for the future. This is something happening right now in this country. I think is the point you're going to. Um, we've got a guy with a uh, microphone, then we'll go to these two here at the front. Thank you for your presentation. Um, my question is how do we here start the revolution that gets our corporate driven governments to take serious action on climate change starting yesterday? Yeah, kick them all out and start again. Yeah, I, I, I was moved, like everybody in the room, with what I've seen today. Uh, Tim and Julian, can you tell us what we need to do when we go home uh, next week and next year to fix this? Ah, Tim told me to go first. Ah. <laughs> uh, um, being aware of the problem is the starting point being convinced that we have to do something to remedy it is the next step. Uh, and then what you actually do to remedy it, I guess you have to set an example. So try and, you know, be conscious of the global warming effects of what you do. Um, and then, depending on your capacity, 
maybe try and get our political so-called leaders to take the thing seriously. Get involved in it. I mean, we really are quite an important entity in this part of the world. And we seem to have some influence even with, even with America and probably with Europe. And if we can start setting an example, there's a possibility that the rest of the world will follow. Now, if we all individually take it seriously and persuade our parliamentarians to take it seriously, then maybe they can persuade the balance of the civilised world to take it seriously. And it is pretty serious. You know, this is probably the first time the whole globe has faced a threat of these proportions. It's hard to think of any other occasion where all of mankind faced the risk of extinction from a single preventable cause. I'd just add, um, I've taken some hope uh, by those young students in Florida after the last massacre. Um, I say to my own kids who are millennials, you should be marching in the streets, maybe rioting in the streets. My generation, uh, not blaming all of us for this, but my generation of baby boomers have been the highest consuming, highest spending, worst saving generation in human history. And we got our free education at tertiary level, negative gearing, massive concessions for superannuation, we have really shafted the next generation, and that's before we've got to climate change. That you, as that generation, need to understand the dangers of the world we're leaving and take a leaf out of what's been happening in Florida, whether maybe the power of the uh, omnipotent NRA is finally going to be, going to be broken. Um, some of my questions have been pretty well answered by just the last two speakers just then. But uh, given that uh, it might be an astronomical curiosity to watch the third rock from the sun uh, go to hell in a handbasket, um, unless there was a reason to prevent it, and that reason is obviously the preservation of humanity, I think first we need to recognise humanity as one, and second, we need to... Uh, promulgate the, the, the idea by education and it is surely education that is the key to uh, addressing climate change. We've got to focus the entire world's attention on this issue and change our behaviour. Um, went to Writers Week the other week, uh, last week and Charles Massey uh, regarding Australia particularly and A.C. Grayling, with his political views, had some very concrete ideas about the directions we should be taking, so there's something to take on board. But, you know, would you agree that education is probably the most significant avenue other than uh, specifics like, uh, you know, using less electricity and so on? I might just say very quickly, absolutely, big fan of education, but... Uh, I, uh, let me put it this way, without tracking the money, without seeing where the corporate power self-interest lies, education of itself has an amazing ability to colour self-interest. Uh, the, uh, the only Christian doctrine I can think of that has empirical evidence is the doctrine of original sin. 
that sense of profound self-interest, even when you're educated. So I think tracking the money, making visible what's invisible in the powerful interests really is uh, fundamentally important. Ladies and gentlemen, we have about 90 seconds left. Um, I'm Sorry, Julian, you're done. What he said, I agree. <laughs> Here in Australia, we hear a lot from uh, people like Tim Costello, people like Julian Burnside. I have a newspaper to write for. What I'd like to do is finally, if the people from from uh, today's discussion leave today, Cathy and Ursula, what is the one thing you'd like them to take away from here? Is there a sentence? Is there two sentences for, for, from each of you? What's the most important thing people should walk away from this tent with today? I'd like people to understand that there is still time and there is still hope. I think that a lot of people have given up. I think that a lot of people scoff at the work that we do and at the, at the idea that we can still you know, save our planet and save our islands. But I think that there is still, there is still hope out there and that there, is, there are a lot of people who are doing the work and that, um, and that you know, our islands matter and, um, and we matter and our stories matter. And I guess I just, I just want people to remember that there is still time to save our islands and to save the world. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with Keti, just one thing from me. Um, I think we've had enough of talking and, and the crowd today, um, just an hour ago, shows that people are, you know, uh, we all believe in climate change and what is happening, and we all need to act together. And I think it is time that we act now. Uh, for starters, if I was living here, I, I will put up two solar panels on top of my house because the, the, sun, the sun here, you cannot pay for it. It's free. <laughs> and, and ladies, can I add? Carbon neutral Adelaide is showing the way. Good on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you to thank our panellists, Kathy Jetnell-Kijana, Ursula Rakova, Tim Costello and Julian Burnside. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dr King, I don't think, will mind me borrowing his phrase, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Thank you very much for your time, for your patience and your passion today. Thank you.